I started by saying that this is a very special time of year on the Jewish calendar. And the way that we talk about that is we talk about a moed. So a moed is literally um, a meeting in time. It's an appointment. It also, it's part of the root is also witness. And our conception of time in Torah is time is a spiral. So there's a linear dimension to time. There is progress. It's not just going around in circles easily. But you do, in the course of time, in many different ways, meet things in the past. So in the simplest level, we see that in the cycles of the year. So the moment that we're in right now, in the year, is between the beginning of the month of Av and the ninth day of Av, Tisha B'Av, which is in the day of morning. So, okay, what is Tisha B'Av? Uh, the ninth day of Av. The reason why it's a day of mourning is because it's the day that the first temple was destroyed and the second temple was destroyed. Now, is it on the same day? On the same day. The same but year? Not but the same, no, the same year. Yeah. Separated by hundreds of years. There have been lots of other disastrous things on Tisha B'Av. It was an important historical point in the Spanish Inquisition. Um, if you remember when uh, the, the Jewish communities in uh, Gaza were uprooted and people were thrown out of their homes, that was also it was scheduled for Tishbab, and then the government decided, oh, we look really bad if we do that, so let's move the day. Um, so th there have been all sorts of things on Tishbab, but the central things are the destructions of the temples. So we can ask why. So the first temple was destroyed, we're taught, because of murder, idolatry, and uh, I'm not sure how to translate it. Uh, Say it in Hebrew. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like uh, uh, sexual, incest. Incest. sexual impropriety. Incest. Adultery? Not um, adultery. Also adultery, but it's more like this general like mm. messing up sexually. Mm. Um, so those those were the causes of um, the destruction of the first temple. The second temple, the causes are, well, it sounds a little more mysterious. We're told that it's basically because of something called Sinat Hinam, which translates as basically groundless or baseless, um, reasonless or purpose, purposeless hatred. Hatred that gets nobody anywhere. So we need to go a little bit further into that to understand that. The roots of Tishbab are actually long before even the constructions of the temples. When we were back, in the wilderness, wandering from Egypt to the Promised Land, we came up to almost to the edge of the land, almost to the border, and we sent off spies. And when the spies came back, they were charged with answering a few uh, essential questions. The questions were basically about the agriculture and about the military preparedness of the people in the land, which makes sense. If you're going to go into the land, you better be able to fight a war. And you better be able to know what you can farm there, right? Um, so these are reasonable questions to ask. Those were the questions uh, Moshe, Moses told the spies to check out. And when they came back, they came back and they said almost exactly the right thing. They came back and they said, yes, the land is wonderful. It's going to be a great, it would be a great place to grow things. But <laughs> the people there are terrifying. We were like ants in their eyes. Like they were just us. They were giants. Giants. They were giants. We were literally Hagabim. We were grasshoppers compared to them. And this is what we call the Shon Hara. Taking information, and instead of reporting information, as a good scientist would do, you report the information. You take the information, and as a bad scientist would do, for example, you warp it to figure it out. 
So they had an agenda. They felt like you were saying in the talk that in the meditation that, that you conducted that how did you say it, that uh, it's like the people had superpowers. Like you can go in even though you're like insects, tiny insects in the eyes of the people who are there. You're going to because the land belongs to you. You're going to inherit it. It's going to be yours. Because of your connection. Because of your connection. Like, but then the spies come back, 10 of the spies say, we can't do it. I'm sorry, nobody asked you if we could do it, and nobody asked what you think about it. But they have some kind of agenda. Now what the agenda is, we'll just leave on the side for now. But what they did is they took information and warped it. And that's essentially what happened with the serpent back in uh, the Garden of Eden. So I think this thing will probably come back, but I just want to put that out there for starters. That day that they did that was Tishabah. That is the root of this day. That is the most primal breakdown that we have. So what is Tishabah? Tishabah is the destruction of the destruction of the temples. Why were they destroyed? Most powerfully because of Sinachinah, because of this groundless uh, hatred. And even before that, the roots are back in the journey to the land itself. Even before we entered the land, with this breakdown because of Lashon Harab, the misuse and warping of information for an agenda. And that takes us way back to the most fundamental breakdown that we have in human consciousness, which is the believing in the serpent. The serpent basically says, you know, if you eat this fruit, you're going to be like gods, and, uh, you know, he doesn't want that. Right. <laughs> but, well, it's true, you will be like God if you eat this. But there's no competition involved. But that was the serpent's agenda. The serpent took reality and turned it into a competition. Turned it into, broke the, the whole holistic nature of, of um, the relationship between uh, humanity and God and turned it into something else completely. So that's most fundamentally what we're going after when we go after Tishabah. So, the Shon Hara is something, it's not just between people, it exists inside of each and every person, whom I've ever met. In, just to give a very simple example from my own life, I, uh, thank you, I've struggled with depression, and I realized, um, not too long ago really, that a big part of what was going on for me was I was interpreting physiological signals that basically I was tired as I'm an emotional crisis, right? And not just I'm an emotional crisis, but if I'm an emotional crisis, I take my emotion very seriously. Therefore, I must be an existential crisis. And if I'm an existential crisis, I'm clearly not a good person because a good person never has everything worked out, right? So, <laughs> all that started with simple physiological signals. You're tired, go to sleep, right? But it wasn't enough for my brain. I was telling this whole story and working it around some agenda, some like victimization, victim agenda, right? I need to be a victim, therefore I'm not responsible, therefore everybody can feel sorry for me, et cetera, et cetera. This kind of et cetera. So that, that happens all the time in billions of different ways. But just a very simple example of how it's not just interpersonal, it's even intrapersonal. So on Tisha B'Av, we read Megillat Eicha. That's mm -hmm. the section of the, the Tanakh, of the Hebrew scriptures that we read. The Gilat is the scroll of lamentations. Okay? I'm saying it in Hebrew because the name is very important. Eicha in Hebrew does not mean lamentations. It means how, 
how is it possible that we got to this point? And not only do we see it in our reading um, on Tisha B'Av itself, we also see it in the Torah portions that we're reading in the regular weekly cycle of Torah that we read every week. Moshe, Moses, in uh, his um, closing monologue to uh, Israel before he passes away, repeatedly says, Eicha, how is it that we had these disasters in the wilderness while we were walking along? Eicha, how could it be? And it's an extremely powerful question because it points... So often when we confront a problem, our reaction is, okay, problem, now what do I do about it? Or even problem, okay, what are the roots of the problem? Let me get down to what caused this problem, and then, you know, then I'll be able to solve it. If I just know what caused this directly. But the way that we tend to look at causes is very linear. And Eicha is a different question. It's, how is this even possible? How did I miss this? What was missing from my perspective that it was even possible to have such a cause? To have, like, what, how could this possibly arise? And we actually see that in another form of the same exact letters. So the letters that we pronounce as Eicha are also pronounced in another place as Ayeka. Ayeka means, where are you? It's a question of your context. Where do you think you are? So it's essentially the same question in a deep way. And where do we find that? We find that in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Hava eat from the tree. They hear the presence of God going through the garden. They get terrified because they know they've done something wrong and feel terribly guilty. And they run and hide. Like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Well, guess what? They weren't thinking about what makes sense, right? They were just terrified. Like, what are we going to do now? Right? So, okay, so let's run and hide. And uh, they're asked an amazing question by God. Like, Ayeka, where do you think you are? How is it possible for you to have come to this? Why, why would I create this whole garden, make this garden, give it over to your care, to, to have you ruin it? Like, why would you do such a... How does any of this make sense? Like, Ayaka, where could you be? Where do you think you are? It's not an attack question. It's not like, where are you? Right. Like, because I know where you are. It's not a threat that way. It's a real question. It's not rhetorical. Ayaka, where are you? I think that's a fantastically powerful question to ask ourselves. Very frequently, you know, for many years, I asked myself the question, who am I? Who am I really? Who am I essentially? And answers to that question were always very top-down. Like, okay, now I have to define myself. And maybe I'll define myself by my job, or maybe I'll define myself by my actions, or uh, my relationships uh, with other people, or I'll define myself by uh, my values, or by the story I tell myself about how I came to be where I am, who I am. And I think all those answers fall short. The deeper existential question, or the, the question that I find more accessible and more helpful, is not who am I, but where am I? Where do I really think I am? What What is the place I occupy? How do I see my context? And then I can ask myself, is this right? Do I have a holistic perspective on my context? What am I leaving out? 
please let me find what I'm leaving out because I know I'm leaving out something. This for me is the like the spirituality of science because that's always the question we're asking ourselves today in science. It wasn't always this way, but like it used to be, scientists tried to prove the theory that was standing. But today, the dream of every scientist is, please let me break this paradigm. Please let me show that everything we've done up to this point is mistaken. To just get beyond the perspective that we have, because we know it's not whole. So there's tremendous hope in this. Tisha B'Av is a day of Avelut. Avelut means morning. Not morning like uh, the time of day, the morning, like, uh, you thank you. Okay, my rabbi said an amazing thing a few years ago about um, morning on Tishabah. He said that everybody thinks that they're learning about what happened, but it's a mistake. What we need to do is to mourn in advance. This is an incredibly powerful idea. And, um, oh, first, I should say that the root of the word. Uh, Avelut, morning, is aval, but, and that's what morning is on an existential level. We live in a certain way, we have a certain life, and you know, this is how things are, or you know, I take it for granted, and then something happens, somebody close to you dies. Aval, but I didn't, but, but, but my life can't be this way, but this was given, this is a part of who I am, but now, you're going to discover that your life is bigger than that. That that's not lost from your life, but you're going to have to live and continue walking, to continue progressing in your path without that. And um, so I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, we actually see in several places in the Torah um, that there is mourning in advance. We're taught that before the mabul, before the, the flood, right? Um, the word doesn't actually mean flood, it actually means confusion. It means um, what? Confusion, mixing confusion things up. Confusion, uh, yeah. um, The chaos, the yeah. remixing of things, yeah. right? Which is physically what happens in the flood. Yeah. And it, yeah. It's terrible when you look at like loose footage of the flood, everything is. So before the mabul, before the flood, it said that God himself was in mourning for seven days over what needed to be done. It was clear this is what needed to be done, but it was, it was also the time to mourn. That was before the flood. There's another time when we built the Mishkan, when we built the tabernacle in the, the desert that we carried with us from Mount Sinai into the land of Israel, which eventually became the temple. When we built it, part of the dedication was to have the Kohanim, to have the priests sit at the entrance to the to the tabernacle, and they sat as if they were in mourning. What were they mourning for? Well, two of them died on the day of um, the inauguration of the, the altar. They did. It's a long story, but the the point is that the preparation for the uh, usage of the Mishkan actually involved mourning. And that's precisely, that's the proto-temple right there. So there was mourning in advance for that. It's amazing. Well, so wait, and, was it because of the temporary nature of things, or was the mourning because of...? Because of the deaths of Nadav and Abihu. Okay. Okay. There's, 
there's more to it, which you're intuiting. Right. Um, but I, I think I should just go ahead. Okay, Okay. I'm sorry if this seems a little disjointed. There are just some important points that you didn't like. have a lot of time to prepare. We understand. Okay. Um, so there's uh, there's a story in the Talmud um, in which the destruction of the temple is being discussed, and the the rabbis are trying to figure out what to do, and they're put in a, they're backed into a corner because there's a guy who's conspiring to get the Roman authorities against the, 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 the rabbis and to um, make the Romans destroy the temple. And the way that he's going to do that is um, he's going to have the Romans bring a sacrifice in the temple, which is fine, but he's going to, to make a blemish on the sacrifice. So anybody who examines the sacrifice says, this can't be offered. It's just forbidden to offer a sacrifice with a blemish. It can't be done. And when the rabbis do that, and the Romans will be angry, and they'll decide, okay, we gotta get rid of these, get rid of these authorities and, and destroy this temple. So the rabbis are discussing what to do about this conspiracy, and everybody's like, listen, this is life or death. This is, you know, we have to commit it, even if it's, you know, even if it's not allowed, it's not okay. And uh, one rabbi keeps coming up with answers for why they can't commit it. Well, we can't do it because if we do it, then people think that this is permitted. He has all these like thumb-waving, hopefully answers for why they can't do it because less people come to think that such a thing is permitted in the temple, and he completely misses the point that there's not going to be a temple if you if you get this wrong. But he's mixing up the whole thing. He's taking the temple for granted, and the Gemara brings an amazing uh, verse: Ashrei Adam Tami. Fortunate is human or humanity who is unconditionally fearful. Sounds like a crazy thing to say. You're fortunate for being unconditionally fearful? It doesn't make any sense. But it's precisely this point. He didn't realize that he was assuming something. He was presuming that the temple had to be there. He wasn't fearful that he had gotten his context wrong. He was missing the whole point. Um, and that's what this what this kind of fear really is. And that, for me, is most what Tisha B'Av is about. Let me question my underlying assumptions. The questions we have to ask, this is really important, I didn't realize this initially, the questions we ask have to be answerable questions. We don't have to have the answers, but they have to be answerable, because otherwise we just fall into kind of nihilism and cynicism. It's like, well, why would I make that assumption? Like, Sorry, that's not the end of the discussion. That's the beginning of the discussion. Right. Why would you make that assumption? Like, let's find out why it shouldn't be assumed. What's the grounding of this? Right? Why does it make sense? Or, like, why is it tentative? So, did so, they do the sacrifice or not? They didn't. They didn't. Okay. And the temple. Okay. Right. Um, and then the temple was destroyed. Yeah. Okay. So, this morning in advance, this questioning of our assumptions, unconditional questioning of our assumptions, is, I believe, what will allow for the re-emergence of the temple. I say re-emergence for a particular reason, um, which I hope will become clear in a moment. So... But it's 744. It's 7.44? Okay. So I'm going to talk, I hope, for five more minutes, and then I'm planning on going to Qigong, and I know that many other people are too. Is that okay? Okay. So who really wants a temple? Like, it's very hard to relate to. Yet, 
and we can look at you know many of us you know when we look for like okay what's the, what's a spiritual reason to want the temple well i know let, let me turn to the kabbalists right and you know maybe they'll see that really there's something spiritual and the temple is a metaphor and no 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 the kabbalists are really into it and um i can't go into all the ins and outs but but it's not really a spiritual thing for them um and they are you know more than anybody else all about the rebuilding of the temple if you turn to one of the uh you know arch rationalists jewish philosopher rambam maimonides the most important or the most uh, obvious need for the temple is kapara is to is to achieve atonement um and this is discussed in hilchot shuva um it's the first uh chapter of uh, the laws of repentance is how it's usually translated you can't really have a yom kippur you can't really um you know become whole with god and creation unless you have the temple because of specific sacrifices but it seems to be a logistical issue like come on these sacrifices really matter like who really needs us to throw a goat off of a cliff like who really like like i mean is this so important like logistics come on like you know god can do anything like why would logistics be so important so that really i think puts the the important question to us this, this is this is new for me this question how can a building be so important how can any building be so meaningful um it just seems mechanical but it's not mechanical and the way we know that is because all the data that we get from the torah and from the tradition uh tells us that it's not mechanical in fact it's because we treated the temple as if it were a mechanism to get what we wanted that it was destroyed right you know this from the new testament the critique of jesus was right this specific regard the temple was broken people were not doing it right in the talmud the, the rabbis say the romans burned down a building that was already dead right we destroyed it long before the building was burned down and it's because of that mechanical just getting what we want from the mechanism that 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 turned out to be the case. Here's the very last point. The temple is called Beit Hayyim, the home of our lives, the home of our life. And so think about building a home for the one you love. And this is really fundamentally what the temple is about. We're building a home for the one of love whom we love. who loves us more than anybody could possibly imagine from our very existence and there's nothing mechanistic about that there's nothing mechanistic about building a home for the one you love that's not just a logistical necessity getting a hotel room is much cheaper and there's actually a very powerful image in a movie in the movie avatar when the tree is destroyed at the end I was destroyed when I saw that because I finally understood what Beit Chaim means. It's not just that they lost their connection with their ancestors; they lost their connection with their life. They were cut off from the source of life. And that's what the temple is about. So I want to bless you all to not just live, but to fully embody life and to um, question all assumptions and to become fully alive. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.